Let us worship God. Oh 
book of Exodus, the third chapter, beginning with the first verse. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. Holy One, we give you thanks for these ancient words and for the lives of those who have carried them down throughout the ages. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds this morning, that your word might fall afresh upon us this day. Amen. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Holy One appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Holy One saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then the Holy One said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is is holy ground. God said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God.
Our second reading this morning is from Exodus 3, 7 through 15. Then the Holy One said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good, broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought my people out of, G- out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. God said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Holy One, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. There ends the reading of the word. So I want to begin by doing an unusual thing. I want to go back to the first reading and highlight two verses. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flame out of the bush. Moses looked, the bush was blazing and yet not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and see this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that Moses had turned to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. There ends this rereading. This narrative is vague, especially vague when it comes to the transition in the flame between the angel and God. The angel speaks first from the bush that is not consumed by fire, and then the voice of God follows. This is a story I heard from 
earliest childhood, and I never saw that gap. So let's imagine that the angel of the Lord appearing in, for Moses, the familiarity of nature, but in an unfamiliar flame, in the wrong place, and it did not rely on the tree as its energy source. This was fire that brought its energy source with it. The shepherd Moses was accustomed to natural wonder, and this further wonder must have summoned him because he said, maybe even out loud, something like, I have got to see this. Then the narrative notices that God saw that Moses had turned aside to see this great sight, and here is the gap. So I had to wonder, was the angel then relieved of duty as God called out to Moses from the bush? I wondered if God had already made more than one attempt to get Moses' attention. And therefore, God employed an angelic administrative assistant. We can't know. Of course we can't know. But this gap in the narrative invites our question. God appears in pursuit of Moses. Moses is in exile. God appears in pursuit of Moses, the exile. In fact, we hear in this narrative that God appears in pursuit of all the Hebrew exiles. In the narrative of this search for man, which Abraham Joshua Heschel calls the burning bush, he says the burning bush is God's search for man, for human beings. In this search, God reveals something of God's self. This is a quest where Moses gets to learn what this God is like in God's own words. It is in their exchange that we glimpse the conditions for relationship. God's self-description amounts to a master class, a master class on the conditions required for relationship. God says, I am paying attention. I am not deaf, but I am listening to the cry that I hear on account of the slave drivers. I am not blind, but seeing, fully seeing the oppression. I am knowing the suffering behind that human cry. I am not absent. I am with you. I am going with you. This God pays attention to humans, observing, 
listening, knowing their suffering, and continuing to participate with them. Now, Moses has a record of paying attention, too. We know that he observed the oppression of the Hebrew slaves at the hand of Pharaoh's slave drivers. We know that Moses saw Hebrew on Hebrew oppression and challenged it. So are these the conditions that allowed a coalition between God and Moses? that allowed the beginnings of a working relationship. Rabbi Ismar Skorsich from the Jewish Theological Seminary wrote, and I'm going to quote this because it's more powerful than I could paraphrase. Moses had already acquitted himself courageously as a man who could not bear to witness acts of injustice. Indeed, Moses may have been brought to Horeb by his own uneasiness at the news he had just received that the Pharaoh who sought his life was now dead. Referring to God doubling the Moses name, the rabbi writes, the absence of a single diacritical marking, and that would be an accent mark, something that tells how to read it in Hebrew. The absence in the oldest text of the doubling of this name points to the urgency of God's appeal. Moses, Moses. Once the attention of, a Moses, of Moses is arrested by the sight of the burning bush, he notes that elsewhere in the Bible, when God calls Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, Jacob, and Samuel, Samuel, the two words are separated by a vertical line. In this text, there is no vertical line. Moses, Moses. The rabbi further writes, in this case, the line is missing. Which suggests a moment of great intensity, akin to someone staggering beneath a load too heavy for them and beseeching a friend to come along and share the load. The torment of Israel, the rabbi continues, God can no longer bear alone. Moses must come alongside to God's aid. In short, God pervades the world to be discovered by us in a common shrub as easily as atop a majestic mountain. In the spirit of Abraham Heschel, God's confronting Moses by way of the bush is a way of saying, that the choice means we can't go any place without discovering God's presence with us. So might there be just such a contemporary urgent appeal for a similar coalition between God and man? I believe we come close to this coalition in our prayers for the world, 
in our prayers for those who are close to us and our prayers that remain so deeply held in the heart that we cannot put language on them yet. We humans seem to want a coalition with God. I often hear people in my office say they want lives of impact. They want to do something valuable to change their family or change their world. I've even heard someone say, I don't want to miss my burning bush. Right there begins a conversation between me and whoever is in my office about individual human efforts and that we cannot cure or change another person or system by ourselves. Even our own family systems resist the effort of a single person to exert control to transform the system. We began to refer to four C's. You did not cause it, you cannot change it, you cannot cure it, you cannot control it. Moses had already learned this firsthand. He could not ch change, he could not control, he could not cure what the systemic empire of Pharaoh's governance had done. There is something we can do, however. We must be like fresh-eyed children, observing like scientists, seeing like artists see, listening like journalists. We must observe like Moses did, as though we were seeing something for the first time. Hey, wait, Moses was seeing this for the first time. We must observe as God observed then and observes us now, as though hearing and seeing afresh. There was a contemporary of Charles Darwin's, his name was Adolf Gellin, and he wrote his view of human beings before he had access to any technological advances. What he wrote was more like poetry. He said something like this. Unlike Earth's other creatures, the human comes upright and lacking the protection of hide or scales or fur. Instead, the human is covered with a sensory sheath from head to toe. It contains receptors to see, to hear, to smell, to taste. The largest of all organs covers the human body and is full of sense receptors. Gellin even predicted what has now come to pass that one day they would discover receptor sites inside the human body that were designed to see and receive another person's emotions. We now call them mirror neurons. When you look at this being, fragile in the world, 
you see, just as Moses had learned, that we were made for relationships. We are made for relationships. We cannot control or change or cure, which makes it impossible for us to demand the outcome we want, but we can create the conditions in which the outcome might occur. We cannot, with promise, plant seeds and assure ourselves of the outcome. But we can create the conditions in which that plant will grow. And the large question for me is, can we create the conditions for community, the conditions in relationship today that begin to change things. My 93-year-old grandmother was the great-granddaughter of a woman who died on the Trail of Tears. And her daughter uh, survived to become my grandmother's ancestor. She was living alone at 93. She'd seen no flames in her garden, but she had proved able to see the flame in another person's life. My aunt and uncle lived next door to her and had cared for her, but she demanded too many hours. She had too great a need. She needed care throughout the day. So they tried one after another to find an assistant for her. She was not often disagreeable, but she showed belligerent opposition to each caregiver. All four failed, and she said, I want Terry. I want Terry. Terry. My family has a multi-generational pattern on both sides of disowning or exiling children. So among my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents were stories of family members that were no longer welcome as family. As you might guess, or you may know first or second hand, the stories are always painful. Terry was a cousin that was no longer welcome in the family. First, they told my grandmother flatly, no. She had only one reply, I want Terry. Then she was told, None of us know where she is. To which my grandmother said, we should know. She smokes, they said, and you hate smoke. Not anymore. We don't know how to find her. My kids are smart and they can figure it out. In the end, without Facebook, 
even without the help of email. Terry's whereabouts were discovered, and she came to live with my grandmother. Within weeks, the house was cleaner than in anyone's memory. My grandmother's health was improving. She laughed. Terry laughed. My grandmother's nails were trimmed and filed. They got out of the house together. Terry's slumped body unfolded, and people said it looked like she was growing. Terry had grown accustomed to distorted mirroring from her family and the people around her. But grandmother was not a funhouse mirror. She was a true reflection of the pain of exile and of the possibility of return. Grandmother brought a boxcar of love, and she slowly unpacked it for Terry. Grandmother created a context in which Terry might come home out of exile. She created it by paying attention, by seeing this woman, by listening to her with her presence, with her knowledge of this young one's suffering, and by resolutely continuing to participate. She created a context for relationship. She created a context for restoration. So take a moment and let your heart sink down to that place where we will be in a few minutes together. When Jenna asks us about the cry of our own heart, the cry that might be there for the world, for those we love. Now let your heart sink even deeper to where the words are yet unformed. Because we have an opportunity this morning to form a coalition with the God who wants to hear our cry.
as we continue now with the prayer chants, you are invited in the silence of your hearts to offer your prayers of intercession and supplication, those prayers for the world, for those you love, and for yourself to be given to God.
Let us pray. Holy One, you have fed us in song, in silence, in story, and in community. And for that, we give you our thanks and our praise. Amen. May the one who wants a coalition with you be with you this week as you bring your attention to this world, to the people God created, as you see, as you listen, as you let those receptor sites on the inside feel the people around you. Go in God's grace. And may the grace of God who created you in love, the peace of Christ who teaches it is possible to be love, and the power of the Spirit who calls you ever forward into new experiences of love be and abide with you this day, this week, and evermore. Amen. Amen.